instance, here we have a highly credible couple, respected in the community, who had no personal agenda for having a UFO sighting or a close encounter or an abduction. It just sort of came out of the blue when they were returning home. And there's so much evidence that this probably was a real abduction that we all have to open our eyes. It causes people to think that perhaps we really are being visited. It was incredibly bizarre and unnerving for Betty and Barney. He wanted to break away and flee back to the car. He had a great deal of difficulty doing this. For some reason, he just couldn't pull those binoculars down from his eyes, and he felt like he was being somehow controlled. But he finally was able to pull them down and run back to the car in a near hysterical state, screaming to Betty that they had to get out of there or they were going to be captured. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Before we dive into this installment of the program, allow me to tip my cap and thank our buddy Ian for providing the theme music to this edition of BOA Audio. Now let's get down to business on this installment of the program, and we are coming at you faster than normal here, and that is because this is our last push for the upcoming Exeter UFO Festival, and the Exeter UFO Festival is coming up here September 3rd in Exeter, New Hampshire. As you may have heard by now, I am the MC for the big event, and I am also a huge fan of the festival, which is why I am pushing it super hard this year. Check out ExeterUFOFestival.com for more information about the big event, and allow me to stress one more time that the entire conference is absolutely free, and we've got some amazing speakers there, including Rich Dolan and Stanton Friedman, as well as, and now we segue into this week's BOA Audio, our guest here tonight, Kathleen Marden. And in a way, it's kind of perfect that we've got Kathleen Marden here on the show right before the Exeter UFO Festival this year, because it is the 50th anniversary of the iconic Betty and Barney Hill abduction case, and much of the festivities surrounding this year's Exeter event are devoted to remembering, celebrating, and investigating the Betty and Barney Hill case. So it all comes around here full circle on BOA Audio. For the folks who can't make the trip out to Exeter, you're going to get a taste of what we're going to hear at the big event. And for the folks who can make it out there, here's a little bit of a teaser and an opportunity to hear from someone that you're going to get the chance to meet at Exeter, talking about, of course, Kathleen Martin. As many of you may know, Kathleen Martin is the niece of Betty and Barney Hill. That's something I've known for quite some time, but what I did not pick up until I read the book Captured, which she co-authored with Stanton Friedman, is that not only is Kathleen Martin Betty and Barney Hill's niece, but she heard about Betty and Barney Hill's encounter with the UFO literally the very day they returned to their home following the incident. 
she probably is maybe the second person on earth ever to hear the Betty and Barney Hill story. So her perspective on this case is absolutely unparalleled. And that is why I was thrilled to get her on BOA Audio here for an in-depth discussion on this iconic case. And knowing that Kathleen was there for every step of the way and then later in life spent decades investigating the Betty and Barney Hill case, I knew at certain points when just to get out of her way and allow her to really discuss this thing in breathtaking detail, which she does over the course of the entire conversation. Because we are going to go over this case from the very beginning and cover all of the major events along the way in the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case. We'll start, of course, with the initial incident. What happened that night, September 19, 1961, in New Hampshire. Kathy is going to paint a picture that will definitely have you in chills. From there, we're going to talk about the subsequent years of investigation into the case by NICAP and ufologists, the historic and terrifying hypnosis sessions with Dr. Simon, the traumatic outing of Betty and Barney Hill's abduction case at the hands of an unscrupulous reporter, the overnight celebrity that was bestowed upon the couple once they embraced their tale, and Barney's tragic demise, which led to even more bizarre incidents for Betty Hill in the years that followed. Plus, of course, tons and tons more. Now, I am certain that there are many, many folks out there who have heard the story of Betty and Barney Hill, and I have a feeling there are some folks out there who are kind of rolling their eyes and saying, why revisit this case? But trust me, folks, this is a BOA audio interview for the books because it is truly a comprehensive discussion with Kathleen Martin, a researcher who was afforded an amazing first-hand perspective on one of ufology's most historic events of all time, talking about the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case. Before I give you the bio here on Kathleen Martin, I want to mention one more interesting little tidbit that you are definitely going to notice as the interview unfolds. We ran into some very strange technical difficulties during the course of the recording of this conversation. What makes that strange is that these issues only came up when we were trying to tackle two very specific questions related to the Betty and Barney Hill incident. Normally, I would take this sort of stuff out of the program. I try to take out any sort of uh, issues that come up as we're taping the show. But this time around, something stood out to me. Something just didn't seem quite right about these technical difficulties that we were having. It just didn't sit well with me. And it became a point of conversation later in the interview with Kathleen Martin. So I felt like I had to do justice to the weirdness that was these issues by keeping them in the program. I definitely cleaned them up a little bit, took out a lot of stuff to make it at least a little more palatable to the listeners, but you'll know for sure when these strange happenings occurred, and I'm going to leave it up to you to make your own judgment on what that was all about, but I will share a little bit more insight into my thoughts on it at the end of the program, but keep an ear out for that as the interview unfolds. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Kathleen Martin, allow me to provide you with a little background on her. Scientific ufologist Kathleen Martin earned her BA in social work at the University of New Hampshire in 1971. 
Thereafter, she entered into graduate studies in education at the University of Cincinnati and later at UNH. She began her professional career as a social worker and eventually entered the field of education as a teacher. Later, she was promoted to a supervisory position, coordinating education programs and supervising education staff. She left her job in 1990 to pursue a career as a UFO investigator, researcher, and writer. She taught adult education classes on UFO and abduction history, and for 10 years volunteered as the Mutual UFO Network's Director of Field Investigator Training. In 2003, MUFON publicly recognized Kathy for her most outstanding contribution of advancing the scientific study of the UFO phenomenon by dedicating the annual MUFON International UFO Proceedings to her. Her 2007 book, Captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, with co-author Stanton T. Friedman, is a case study of her aunt and uncle's 1961 UFO close encounter and abduction. In 2010, Kathy co-authored Science Was Wrong with Stan Friedman, and 2011 brought a new book, UFOs and Aliens, with a chapter on alien abduction by Kathy. Her new DVD, In Their Own Words, was released in June 2011. Kathy has appeared on dozens of television and radio programs in the United States, Canada, and Europe, including the History Channel, the Discovery Channel, New Hampshire's Chronicle, Fox News, and Coast to Coast AM. Additionally, she has lectured at major conferences and colleges throughout the United States. Her website is www.kathleen-marden.com. Check it out. And with all that said, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on August 24th, 2011. Kathleen Martin talking about the Betty and Barney Hill abduction incident on BOA Audio Season 6. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Very excited about this installment of the program. We're going to be examining really one of the most iconic UFO cases uh, in the history of ufology, and it's coming up on its 50th anniversary, and I'm talking about the Betty and Barney Hill abduction. I mean, when you say iconic, that's almost an understatement. I mean, this, this thing has tremendous historical implications for the world of the paranormal uh, across the board. And we've got as our guest Kathleen Martin. She is the niece of Betty and Barney Hill. And what you'll find out as we go along here, which is fascinating to me, which I learned from reading her book that she co-authored with Stan Friedman called Captured, is that she's not just like their niece that she heard the story like secondhand years and years later. She was really right there on the front lines as this thing was unfolding and was there for a lot of seminal moments in the Betty and Barney Hill case, which I find just tremendously fascinating. So we're going to get into all that here tonight with Kathleen Martin. It's really a thrill to have her on the show. Kathleen, welcome to BOA Audio. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. We usually start out here kind of with the bio, the background. I sort of, uh, you know, spoiled it a little bit for folks, but, you know, chances are they've heard by now uh, your connection to Betty and Barney Hill. But, you know, you've dedicated so much of your life getting their story out. I don't want to lose who Kathleen Martin is. So, you know, give us your bio, your background. You know, what's your story all about beyond just the Betty and Barney Hill case? Well, I, because uh, I was 13 years old when Betty called my mother to tell her about the close encounter that she and my uncle had had the night before on September 19th and into the early morning hours of September 20th, 1961, I was seated in the same room. And this sparked my curiosity, and it was something I was so interested in 
as I was growing up uh, through my teenage years, as Betty and Barney were beginning to be permitted by Dr. Simon to recall the details of their separate hypnosis sessions with him. Uh, but after high school, I pursued my own career. And I went to college, I, I became a social worker, and then I went to graduate school in education. Uh, I taught school for a number of years. I was an education services coordinator and, uh, and also wrote a great deal about the projects that I worked on uh, in the field of education. But around the year... 1985 to 1990, perhaps, I started to read articles in mainstream magazines, uh, articles that were written by people like Carl Sagan and Philip Klass, uh, two skeptics, that seemed to be misrepresenting the facts in the Hill case. And at that point, I can tell you that I really wasn't certain of what the the actual accurate information was. Mm -hmm. And I started to ask my aunt about this. And she then opened up her files to me. And it so happened that I was in a position where I was able to stop working with the help of uh, my husband who was supporting my work and and the my pursuit to investigate my aunt and uncle's UFO experience and to do the long uh research project that it w I would have to undertake in order to find out all of the details about what happened to them so I then started working very closely with my Aunt Betty. I would travel the 20 miles or so to her house in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, from my home in East Kingston on the seacoast. And I started doing interviews with her. And I played devil's advocate through all of these interviews, mm -hmm. uh, attempting to poke holes in her story, uh, attempting to debunk her story myself. Uh, at, she also turned over those files to me. These were 40 years in the end of uh, letters to and from scientists, all of the original early investigation reports, the reports from other investigators who had contacted her over the years. So I ended up with a, a wealth of information about her case. And she and I would make yearly trips up to the Close Encounter route. We would drive along the Close Encounter route. We would stop at the stops that she and my uncle stopped at on the night of their Close Encounter. We would talk about, and in fact, I even tape recorded her statements about each stop along the way. Hmm. We would go to the abduction site, and we would visit the abduction site and walk on that. I attempted 
to lose time there. I attempted to find a prosaic explanation for that two-hour period of lost time that my aunt and uncle had and found out that I just simply could not do it. Yeah. Driving those back roads, I was able to eventually lose maybe a half hour or 45 minutes, but nowhere near the, two, the full two hours that they lost, uh, even accounting for the time that they stopped, because I would time those stops. I also was very interested in the hypnosis tapes. Yeah. And in 1996, she obtained a release of information and turned those hypnosis tapes over to me for comparative analysis. I transcribed the tapes, and then I lined her sentences up against Barney's, statement by statement, and compared their statements uh, against under hypnosis against the the statements in the original reports and against her statements in a five-page paper that she had written about a series of dreams that she had a couple of weeks after her close encounter in 1961. In those dreams, and, and they occurred in the early morning hours uh, just before she woke up, in those dreams were pieces of the information that she had conscious recall for regarding the close encounter, before the close encounter and after it. But sandwiched in between was an abduction by aliens. Actually, the aliens in her abduction, in her dreams, looked very much like Southern Europeans. They looked very human, not like the ones that she and my uncle remembered under hypnosis, but there was also an abduction sequence where she and my uncle were taken on board a craft, where she was given a physical examination, where she had an interview, and then she was released. And so I wanted to examine her statements uh, made under hypnosis and my uncle's statements versus the information in that dream sequence to find out if, in fact, she merely had repeated this fantasy material under hypnosis and if my uncle had somehow gleaned that information and confabulated his own abduction experience under hypnosis. Right, right. So That's what the skeptics are always saying, yeah. I took a very scientific approach to this. I was very interested in the study of hypnosis. I had uh, studied it. I wrote uh, a couple of papers on it, research papers, and eventually I ended up uh, becoming a credentialed hypnotherapist. My background is in the social sciences. I was, uh, as I said, uh, a social worker, and uh, then I went into the field of education. But my primary interest was always in the social sciences. Interesting, interesting. Okay, well, it sounds like you've had this amazingly fantastic uh, research opportunity at the risk of, you know, uh, sort of stripping it down to almost a scientific level. I mean, just, just stunning, not only the information, but the ability to go firsthand right to Betty and, and, and discuss this is, a, you know, a once-in-a-lifetime uh, opportunity for any researcher. So, you know, tremendous stuff. Just to sort of bring the audience up to speed, you know, let's sort of give them the thumbnail 
what is the Betty and Barney Hill story? I know you've probably told it a million times, and I apologize for having to ask you this, but, you know, I feel like the show is sort of like the, you know, the historical record, at least we strive to be. So, you know, tell the story of what happened to Betty and Barney Hill way back then in 1961. Yes, it's always important for the listeners to know what happened. Exactly. Then we're all on the same page, yep. Yes. Uh, Betty and Barney were on a short vacation to... Uh, upstate New York and Canada to Montreal, and they were driving home to the New Hampshire home on New Hampshire's seacoast, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, at night. Um, when they were in Montreal, they, they heard that a hurricane was coming up the coast, <laughs> and so they decided that instead of spending the night at Montreal, they should uh, drive home. Now, this wasn't a problem for Barney, who was well-rested from the night before, and he worked for the Boston Post Office on the, the graveyard shift, so he was accustomed to staying up all night. And he and my aunt decided that if they grew tired, they'd stop in New Hampshire at a cabin on the way home. Uh, so they're driving through upstate New Hampshire uh, when my aunt spots a new light in the sky. The thing that drew her attention to it is that at first she wondered if it was a falling star, but it fell upward. And then it stopped beside the moon. And this was very perplexing to her. She wondered if it was a satellite. Uh, my grandfather was very, very interested in satellites. In fact, I grew up across the street from him. And we would go out at night and, and look for satellites and observe satellites in the sky. But Betty had never done this. Uh, so she wondered if that's what it might be, and she continued to watch it. Well, it stopped beside the moon and started to grow larger and larger in size. And when she and my uncle reached the town of Twin Mountain. It was large enough so that it really piqued her curiosity. It was then about a quarter the size of the moon, which was a waxing gibbous moon that night. Uh, the, the, uh, the sky was bright and starry. The visibility from the top of Mount Washington was 130 miles. Oh, wow. So, uh, she, she told my uncle she wanted to stop. She wanted to get a better look at this through the binoculars. So he did pull over to the side of the road at the Mount Cleveland picnic area. This was their first stop. And they got out of the car. She took the binoculars, and she looked at it as it traveled across the moon, flashing multicolored lights. My uncle then took the binoculars, and he looked at it. It was traveling west toward Vermont, and then without looking as if it had turned, it descended very rapidly in his direction. <laughs> and it was silent, and it was large enough now so that he could see a row of windows that made, gave it a cigar-shaped appearance. He got back into the car and started driving south as Betty continued to watch this craft. They entered the north end of Franconia Notch, and Franconia Notch is a very populous, uh, popular tourist area 
Uh, it's a beautiful area. As you enter it, you come to the Cannon Mountain Aerial Tramway. It's a small ski area, and it's open uh, in the summer, too. You can ride the tramway to the top of the mountain. There's a restaurant up there, and there's also a signal tower that is lighted at night. It has a bur- steady burning light. And Betty noticed that as the craft passed over the top of Cannon Mountain, a light blinked out. Hmm. And she was perplexed by this. She didn't know anything about UFO. She'd never read a book on the subject. Um, and my uncle was a confirmed skeptic at that point. He didn't believe that UFOs were real. Uh, and so she didn't know that it might have been electromagnetic interference from the craft that caused the light to blink out. Well, they continued to watch as they're driving down the road, and they stopped. They decided to stop by the old man of the mountain, which is about a mile south of the Cannon Mountain aerial tramway. So they pulled beside the road there. It looked different uh, then than it does today if you ever go up there. Route uh, Interstate Highway 93 is uh, in the location where U.S. Route 3 used to be in that area. So uh, it's now four lanes, and uh, it has been built up and elevated above the the level that it used to be. Mm-hmm. But uh, Betty and Barney stopped by the old man of the mountain and got out again. They took the binoculars, and they looked at this craft. At that time, it hovered beside the old man's profile. And what is significant here is the the old man's profile was 48 feet from forehead to chin. Mm-hmm. He fell off the mountain in 2003, but uh, he was there in 1961. Yeah. <laughs> and the craft was one and a half times, at least one and a half times, the length of the old man's profile. Hmm. He was about 3,000 feet uh, above sea level. So he was probably about uh, 1,500 feet above where Betty and Barney were standing. Uh, that estimate may not be correct on my part. It could be a couple of thousand feet. But anyway, uh, they stood, they looked at it through binoculars. The craft uh, at that point appeared to have begun rotating. They could see this blip, blip, blip as, as it uh, rotated. And then it started to move. It started to bounce back and forth in the sky and also to travel in what appeared to be like a stair-step pattern. Uh, They returned to the car. Barney was anxious to just to get home. And they drove through Franconia Notch. They exited the south entrance by uh, an area called Indian Head. And Betty was becoming excited at this point. And Barney was a little bit irritated with her because he said that Betty rarely became excited. (laughs) Uh, So this had to be something pretty significant, but he had to drive. He couldn't look up at this thing and watch the road at the same (laughs) time. So he was looking for a place to pull over, but before he even had the opportunity to do that, this craft shifted ahead and stopped right over the highway and just to 
the right of the highway, that would be the west of the highway, uh, causing Barney to have to stop the car directly in the middle of the road in order not to be directly underneath it. And then it descended in their direction and stopped uh, an estimated one to 200 feet above their car. In their first report, the first picture they drew, Barney drew a picture of the craft and he said that uh, it was about, that's how it looked when it was about 200 feet above the car. Uh, they could tell at that point that it was not cigar shaped. Uh, what gave it the cigar shaped appearance was the win lighted windows. It, they could now see that it was dish shaped. And he described it as looking like uh, a giant pancake. It had still that lighted row of windows and it, there was a, an intense blue-white light that was shining from behind those windows. He stepped out of the car. He had his gun and he had his binoculars. He had taken the gun out of the trunk of the car way back when they were at uh, their first stop because there was a picnic area there with trash barrels, and he was afraid that bears might be coming out of the woods. Mm -hmm. It was an area where there were bears. Um, so... At this point, he took the gun not because he was afraid of bears, but because he was feeling uh, a little bit weary of the situation that he was in. He was a little afraid of this craft. Yeah. So he uh, he's looking at it through binoculars. Betty's looking at it through the passenger uh, from the passenger seat through the windshield, and the craft then shifts position again and then he he described it almost it glided in an arc-like pattern over to an adjacent field which was just to his east this was a farmer's field there were some apple trees there there was a farm stand where they sold probably apples in the fall maybe vegetables in the summer uh, but a, a typical New Hampshire farm stand and he walked into the field and looked through binoculars up at the craft. Now, what he saw were figures, and this is part of his conscious recall. I'm still working on conscious recall here. Okay, yep. Um, he said there were 8 to 11 figures staring down at him. And he also, uh, in uh, his initial reports, the first one was September 26, 1961, stated that they were dressed in shiny black uniforms. And in October, on October 21st, 1961, he told Walter Webb that they were somehow not human. Uh, he wasn't sure exactly what their features looked like, but he knew that they were not human beings on board that craft. Uh, they, all but one, suddenly turned and walked toward what appeared to be a panel on the back of this corridor that seemed to circle around this craft. He could at least see it on the front portion of the craft. Yeah. And when they went there, he could see their arms going up into the air. And when their arms went up, 
lights that seemed to be on each side of the craft, these little red lights, seemed to come out on little fin-like structures, and something started to drop down out of the bottom of the craft. Barney said at that point, looking through the binoculars, they appeared to be about the, the, the length of a pencil. Uh, from the distance that he was viewing them. And I'm talking about the figures on board the craft. Okay. He could see them from the tops of their heads down to uh, their lower legs. And the leader, he called him the leader, who was standing in the window staring down at him, held a special attraction for Barney. And... Barney was terribly frightened by this leader who was staring down at him. He (laughs) thought that the leader had a plan for him and that that plan was to capture him and, uh, and quote, like a bug in a net, closed quote. Uh, He wanted to break away and flee back to the car. He had a great deal of difficulty doing this. For some reason, he just couldn't pull those binoculars down from his eyes, and he felt like he was being somehow controlled. But he finally was able to pull them down and run back to the car in a near hysterical state, screaming to Betty that they had to get out of there or they were going to be captured. He went speeding down U.S. Route 3, and uh, he told Betty to look up to see if she could see the craft because when he ran to the car, he could see the craft uh, shifting back from the field over the top of the car. She rolled down the window, she looked up, and all she could see was blackness. She couldn't see the stars. She couldn't see the moon. She couldn't see the lights on the craft. It was sort of like a black void. And then she and Barney heard a series of code-like beeping or buzzing sounds that seemed to be striking the trunk of the car. And it caused the car to vibrate and for a tingling sensation to pass through their bodies. The next thing they knew, as if only a moment had passed, they were 30 to 35 miles south on Route 3. They had very little recall of what happened in that 35 miles. They heard a second series of beeping or buzzing sounds, and that is what jogged them back into full consciousness. And they had vague memories of observing a fiery orb in the road silhouetted against some trees and vague memories of encountering a roadblock, but they didn't know where or when that occurred. They then continued on driving south to their home in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. They looked up from time to time. They didn't see the craft again. But when they arrived home, they realized that they were a little later than they had anticipated. It was now dawn, and they expected to be home at about 3 o'clock in the morning. They didn't realize for a couple of months when they had the opportunity to actually reconstruct all of their, their stops and their trip that it was a full two hours that they were missing. Uh, but they did observe 
physical evidence that something had happened that they could not explain. Betty's dress was torn in several spots. The top of her zipper had a two-inch tear. It was torn from waist to hemline on the lining, and the hem was torn down on one side. It was in fine shape when she put it on that morning. There was no prosaic explanation for how that had occurred. Barney was a meticulous dresser. The tops of his shoes were scraped, and they were so badly scraped that he had to buy new shoes and use those for yard work after that. The watches they had been wearing that night, they were typical wind-up watches um, from that period of time. They worked fine, but Betty's was still working at 11.10 when she passed Cannon Mountain and looked at it, but they had stopped working and they never ran again. There were also shiny circles on the trunk of their vehicle. They were all about the size of half dollars, the silver dollars, and they caused a compass needle to spin and spin when it was a compass was placed over them, but the needle would drop down when it was moved to another area of the car. They felt contaminated. They were perplexed. They were shocked. They were worried that they might have been exposed to something that might harm them. Um, wow. And uh, so, uh, you know, they were immediately perplexed by all of this. Barney wanted to forget the whole thing, but Betty wanted to learn as much as she possibly could about it. Hmm. Very just fascinating. I love the way you tell the story, too, such detail. Uh, I just was – I wish you could see me listening to this because as yeah, you're sort of like telling, uh, you know, how – Barney's looking up, and he's looking. I'm sort of like, you know, trying to mimic these things and get into that experience. So, just fascinating. Now, at what point to sort of bring this back to the personal end? Now, how did you find out about all this? You know, they they, they come home, they think something happened, something obviously very strange happened. You know, at what point did you hear this whole story? It was the same day that they arrived home. Oh, wow. Uh, when they went home, they took long showers, and they went to bed. They slept a few hours, and then they woke up, and they actually went into different rooms and sketched what they have had observed. And then uh, Betty called my mother and told my mother about what their close encounter about this craft they had observed. I was in the same room. So I heard about it that day. Within a couple of days, my family drove uh, from our house in Kingston, New Hampshire, to Betty's and Barney's house, and I actually got to observe those shiny spots on the trunk of the car. I heard the story again from Betty, and Barney sat in the living room talking to my father. And I asked my father uh, recently about Barney's statements, and he said that Barney was very clear about what he saw and the fact that he did observe non-humans on board that craft. Yeah, that's remarkable that that's part of his conscious memory because, you know, a lot of people dog on hypnosis and everything, but, I mean, we're talking about something that has absolutely no connection in any way to the hypnosis part of, of the whole case. Is, is That's absolutely thought. true, and I think that that part of the story has been underplayed over the years. 
Uh, people would like to think that they just saw a distant light in the sky and then Betty had some dreams and, and that's where all the story came from. But that's absolutely false. And when I, I speak, when I do my lecture in Exeter at the UFO Festival, I'm going to be presenting the evidence, the original documented evidence that shows what Betty and Barney actually did recall. That's great, yeah, because like you said, this, this that's underreported. It's under uh, it's underemphasized, which is which is key. It's a key part of the story that uh, this is the first time I've, I've learned this information. What was your mother's reaction? What was the family reaction to this? Because this is a different time. This is sort of like this is the early '60s. I mean, nowadays people have their own you know preconceptions and ideas about UFOs. Back then, it was a completely different world. You know, what was the reaction as you guys heard this story? Well, we were fascinated, we were perplexed, and we were concerned for Betty and Barney because if this indeed had come from outer space, then perhaps Betty and Barney had been exposed to contaminants. Perhaps Betty and Barney uh, would suffer the health effects of this experience. So we were very concerned for their well-being. Did they seem okay, though, relatively? I mean, uh, they, they didn't seem, even though you said they said they felt contaminated, they didn't seem sick or anything like that when you guys saw them like, a couple weeks later. No, no. It was a couple of days later. Oh, a couple of days. I'm sorry, yeah. And uh, no, they, they did not seem ill. Now, I want to make sure I ask you about this, because it was in my notes here from Captured, and it just blew my mind, and uh, and, and I presume that... You know, you would have more information on this. At one point, shortly after the abduction, um, Betty and Barney are out somewhere, and they come home, and there's a pile of dried leaves on the center of the table, and then underneath those are the earrings that Betty was wearing the night of the encounter, which she had never even realized had gone missing. So, I mean, tell a little bit about that story, and, and you know, what do you think is going on there? That's just tremendously bizarre beyond even the whole abduction scenario. Absolutely. It was incredibly bizarre and unnerving for Betty and Barney. Uh, they had actually gone up to the White Mountains that day. They uh, were attempting to jog their memories to remember the details of what happened during that period of lost time. And they returned home, uh, and on their dining room table, they saw leaves that hadn't been there in the morning. They were withered brown leaves. They went over and, and picked the leaves up to throw them into the trash, and there were the earrings that Betty had been wearing on the night of her experience. She didn't know that they were missing. She never knew uh, whether or not they were missing or who put those leaves there with those earrings. Uh, but I recall that she and my uncle then came to my childhood home. They were very distressed. They talked to my parents and uh, decided that they should put new deadbolt locks on the doors. <laughs> and I remember how my father went down and, and assisted Barney in putting those locks on. And how soon after the, the experience was this, uh, the, the dry leave incident? Well, they started to go back and uh, to their site uh, to along the close encounter route 
I think it was in about December of 1961. So I would say this was probably uh, the winter or early spring of 1961 that this occurred. Okay, so about, you know, four. I don't recall exactly what the date was. Yeah. But at that point, how many people had even heard the whole story of what happened to them? Probably only a very, very, very small handful of people, right? Very small handful. The Air Force officers who interviewed them for Project the Project Blue Book report, Walter Webb from NICAP, Donald Kehoe from NICAP, Robert Homan and C.D. Jackson, uh, who were two of the early investigators in that case, too, and their friend, um, who was uh, had recently retired from Pease Air Force Base, uh, James McDonald, Jim McDonald, not uh, not to be confused with the physicist from Arizona. Mm-hmm. This was uh, an Air Force officer. He was also uh, uh, undercover for the CIA. Um, so you know, it, it's hard to say if this was. Uh, Activity from an intelligence agency designed to unnerve Betty and Barney, or if this was ET activity, who knows? But it certainly was unnerving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the strange part. As I said, like I asked you here, so sort of for a proverbial list of suspects, and it's like even if, even if it was put there by a human, that has all kinds of implications because it stands to reason that the only way the earrings would have gone missing was during the abduction experience at some point, which would necessitate some kind of human ET connection to get the earrings back. So it's bizarre. The whole thing is very strange. It is bizarre because who would have known what earrings Betty was wearing that night? Exactly. I mean, only she knew, probably. But there they were on the table. Very, very weird stuff. So, okay, so I'm trying to, like, stay within the chronology here of this whole story, too. So they come home, and, uh, you know, Barney doesn't really want to pursue this. Betty does. What's their next step? Report this to the Air Force and the authorities? Yes. Uh, when she called my mother, the uh, former chief of police of Newton, New Hampshire, happened to be visiting. He was my father's best friend. He stopped by for coffee on his way home from work every night. And uh, he had been informed by Pease Air Force Base that if anyone reported a UFO, that the police should advise them to call Pease. Mm-hmm. So my mother uh, then told Betty to make a formal report. And uh, Betty and Barney were law-abiding citizens, uh, and they wanted to do the right thing. So they called Pease Air Force Base, and, and they made a report. Right, right. Like I said, different era. Nowadays, people, people wouldn't would probably be very suspicious or not want their names out there. I'm, you know, I'm sure that they was there an underlying concern about the ridicule associated with this subject, especially back then. You know, were they like, listen, we don't want this story to get out. Well, certainly Barney didn't want it to get out, and and I guess Betty didn't either because it was supposed to remain confidential. Uh, it was only released to the public in 1965 through a violation of confidentiality. So, uh, yes, uh, I imagine there was a ridicule factor back then as well. Yeah. So, you know, it stands to reason here that 
obviously the uh, the report to the Air Force didn't really see any answers because we're still talking about this case now. So I presume the Air Force gave them the runaround, and then what was the next step for them to contact the the you know the UFO uh, intelligentsia, if you will, you know the folks like NICAP. Yes. Well, the the Air Force. Uh, did take a report. The officer was very interested, Betty said. He also seemed skeptical, but he was very interested in some of the details of the craft. And uh, he did state that uh, he didn't know if it was related or not, but they had picked something up on radar that same night at 2.14 a.m. at Pease Air Force Base. So uh, I do have the Air, Air Force uh, re- Blue Book report, and it is uh, in the appendix of captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience by Stanton Friedman and myself. Um, then Betty was very curious, naturally. She's a very curious person. So she went to the library and took out a book about UFOs. It was the first book she'd ever read on the topic. It was written by Donald Kehoe, and in the back of the book, uh, was a statement that if anyone observed a UFO, they should report it to NICAP. So she sat down on September 26, 1961, and wrote a one-page letter to Donald Kehoe. And there were some very interesting things in that letter. I'll be showing that uh, also when I speak in Exeter. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that she stated was that... Uh, they had had a close encounter with this craft, that uh, it had moved in a stair-step pattern, that uh, it was silent, that it was hovering, uh, that my Uncle Barney uh, seemed to have developed uh, a mental block after he had observed individuals dressed in black, shiny uniforms, and that they were uh, considering the possibility of looking for a psychiatrist who used hypnosis to help to recover the memories that Barney had lost, that he couldn't remember about the appearance of these beings. So uh, that's a little-known fact, but uh, they were thinking about that only six days after it happened. Amazing. Amazing. This is why I'm so thrilled to have you on the show, because there's so much information here that is just so fresh to so many people, because you have such firsthand experience on this. Okay, so then they're thinking about the hypnosis. They've contacted NICAP. As you said, it sounds like NICAP really... I'm surprised, actually, that NICAP got involved in this in a way, because it seems like back then there was quite the anti-being bias, if you will, with it. A lot of these UFO researchers didn't even want to touch cases that involved beings of any kind. There certainly was. I mean, there had never been an abduction report to NICAP before, and NICAP didn't even want to consider the idea that that these uh, UFOs might be manned by intelligent beings. <laughs> I guess they preferred to think they were remote-controlled. But uh, anyway, Walter Webb, who was an astronomer, uh, he was a lecturer at Hayden Planetarium at the Museum of Science in Boston, uh, was assigned to the case. And he went up on September, on October 21st and interviewed Betty and Barney separately and then together for the six-hour period. 
And then he went home. He wrote a report uh, dated October 26th. It was a lengthy, detailed report about what Betty and Barney had actually observed. So uh, this was a very significant piece of my information uh, in writing Captured. I've been in touch with Walter. I met him back when I was a teenager. I admired him. In fact, he helped my father to find a telescope for me. I became very, very interested in, in astronomy after my aunt and uncle had this experience and, and needed a telescope at that point. But getting back to Walter, I, real, I have to say that I admire his investigation uh, of my aunt and uncle and of uh, another UFO abduction he investigated. Uh, it was a 1968 in, uh, abduction he investigated in 1978. Uh, he is a very, very thorough investigator and very objective and unbiased, and he did a terrific job on this and and he wrote many many letters to my aunt Betty, and they were very valuable to me uh, when I was doing my research on captured because he, Betty would write to him and she would tell him how she and my uncle were feeling and how uh, what they had discovered on each one of these trips that they took up into the White Mountains and what memories were jogged during that trip. So I could see how memories would come back to them a little bit more and a little bit more over time before they actually underwent hypnosis with Dr. Simon. Very interesting. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Now, keeping sort of in the theme here of this chronology of the story, so the NICAP's looking at this. At some point, you reach a dead end in a sense because we, we just really don't know what's going on with the UFO phenomenon. So then they want to take this to the next level. So they do go to Dr. Simon. Approximately what in what time frame did all this start then? Okay. It was not NICAP who went to Dr. Simon. Yeah, it was Betty that's and what Barney. I meant. That's what I meant by um, that. Yeah. Barney had begun to suffer from symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, he had developed bleeding ulcers. He hadn't been a drinker, but uh, he was experiencing a lot of anxiety, and he was self-medicating with alcohol, and this was a real problem. So uh, he started to see a psychiatrist locally, and but the psychiatrist didn't understand what Barney's problem was. He had made a very nice adjustment to his new life in New Hampshire after he had married Betty. He seemed very happy. He really didn't have a significant problem. Um, but Barney then mentioned to him one day when he was in a session with him that he and my aunt had spent the previous weekend at the White Mountains attempting to jog their memories about this lost time. And so the psychiatrist then decided that perhaps that could explain Barney's physiological symptoms. And he made a referral to Dr. Benjamin Simon. The referral was made in the fall of 1963, and they saw Dr. Simon for the first time in December of 63 for consultation. And their first hypnosis sessions uh, were in 
January of 1963, and this was a period of conditioning. But Varney's first uh, taped hypnosis session, the regression, was on February 22nd, 1964. Now, Dr. Simon was very, very skilled in what he did. He was a psychiatrist trained in the use of deep trance hypnosis to resolve traumatic amnesia. He had had a tremendous amount of success working with shell shock victims after and during World War II. He had uh, set up the psychiatric unit at the Mason General Hospital on Long Island in New York, and he was the chief of neuropsychiatry. He uh, treated victims of what was then called conversion hysteria. And what that means is these uh, people would return from the war. Let's say uh, a, a man was, was unable to walk, but there was no physical reason. It was a psychological reason. And Dr. Simon would place him into deep trance hypnosis and... Uh, under hypnosis, he would recall what had happened to him that caused him to develop this trauma. And where other psychiatrists hadn't been successful, Dr. Simon was successful because he was tenacious. He didn't take the first explanation. In, in one case that I, uh, and thinking of right now that was in the movie Let There Be Light made about Dr. Simon's work. There was a man who was blind uh, for psychological reasons. Now, he had been in the foxhole and he had seen his buddy's head blown off. Oh. And, but he had not, uh, his symptoms had not receded with, through treatment with other psychiatrists. And Dr. Simon pushed him to find out what other uh, reasons there were to cause this. And he found out that this man had received a Dear John letter from his sweetheart before this had happened to him. So it was a combination of those two disappointing and shocking events that caused this man's symptoms. And then you could see that this man suddenly had his eyesight back, just as you could see in the earlier case I talked about where the man went in a, in a wheelchair, he walked out of that room. Wow. And uh, Dr. Simon had a tremendous amount of success in treating these uh, men. He won uh, awards uh, from the Army. For his work, he won the Commendation Medal. He was uh, in Who's Who in America. He taught at Harvard. He lectured at Yale. He was really outstanding in his field, and he did not believe that UFOs were real. And then he ends up with this case. And, and then he ends up with this very perplexing case, yes. <laughs> was he... <laughs> Was he reluctant to take it on, or was he more of like, this is a challenge, this is a, you know, a, a tremendous challenge that, that, that I'm interested in, in pursuing? Uh, he didn't seem reluctant to take it on. 
uh, he was, uh, he um, um, immediately assumed that the, there had to be a psychological explanation for this and there had to be a mundane explanation for this. That it couldn't have been related to a UFO sighting. Interesting, interesting. So this is, so we're talking about three years and change after the initial abduction that the hypnosis starts. Well, it happened in 61. Um, in September of 61, it was uh, January of 64. Oh, so two years and change. There you go, yeah. Yes, years and change. Uh, yes. And uh, so he took Barney first and hypnotized him, did a couple of hypnosis sessions with him. The interesting thing about Barney is that he didn't do what we normally think of as hypnotherapy today with abductees. He did hypnoanalysis with Barney. He was a psychoanalyst. So uh, he, it was sort of like psychoanalysis, but in hypnoanalysis, you can just break down a person's defense mechanisms and just lay their psyche bare and really get to uh, their deepest level. And so that's what he did with Barney. And Barney was actually his patient, but Betty was only there uh, as someone that he could hypnotize who went through the same experience so he could compare notes, sort of, <laughs> in the beginning anyway. He did realize after a while that uh, that Betty uh, had experienced trauma as well. Yeah. And then, okay, so we're talking two and a half years or so, two years and change uh, after the event, and then they're going to going to hypnosis. How long did these, not the specific actual session, but how long did the hypnosis you know, um, treatment last? How long was that ongoing? Well, the treatment was for six months, okay. and he took Betty and Barney separately. Uh, one waited in uh, a soundproof office while uh, with classical music playing on the hypnosis tape. You can hear that music, uh, sometimes very loud. Uh, one was in his office. And, uh, for the hypnosis session, and then Dr. Simon reinstated amnesia at the end of each session so that they couldn't remember what they had recalled under hypnosis. Oh, and therefore, um, wouldn't experience the trauma of remembering these very traumatic events all at once. And also, it, uh, it guaranteed they wouldn't contaminate the information. Absolutely, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Very interesting and very uh, thoughtful technique. See, this is why I'm not a hypnotist. I wouldn't have thought of that. And then I would have been like, oh, no, they're, they're going to go home and talk about this. Um, yeah. So that went on for about six months. So then we're getting into uh, almost like about the third anniversary here. So you must have been, as a kid, you're following this. Did you right from the start think that this was like a UFO that they saw or you just weren't sure? And, and did your like perspective on all this change as, as their perspectives changed? No, yeah, I was, I was a pretty naive <laughs> child. And, uh, you know, I just did, I didn't know that, uh, UFOs even existed, but, uh, it was sort of an awakening for me and, and I believed that it did happen. I guess we'll skip sort of ahead a little bit in the chronology here to when they were outed as abductees in this uh, in this newspaper article. How did all that go down? Because it it sounded like it was devastating in, in a lot of ways to them to to have to overnight deal with this. I mean, it's one thing to sort of slowly, 
you know, creep it out into the public eye, but they were just sort of like just completely outed uh, with obviously without their permission or intent. So I guess talk a little bit about that, that what happened there. Absolutely. It was devastating because Betty was a social worker for the state of New Hampshire. Barney worked for the post office. He had been appointed to serve on the U.S. Civil Rights Commission's State Advisory Committee for the state of New Hampshire. Uh, he had campaigned for Lyndon Johnson. He and Betty and I were invited guests to Johnson's inauguration. He was the chairman of the board of directors for the Rockingham County Community Action Program, a program she, uh, my aunt and uncle had helped to set up. They were well known throughout the state. They worked on a literacy program. They were active in the NAACP. Uh, so, they were known and respected in their community and throughout the state. And all of a sudden, this article appeared in the Boston Traveler. And they were horrified. It ran for five nights. They thought they were going to lose their jobs, their standing in the community. It was the worst thing that could possibly have happened to them uh at that time, and they fled from their home in Portsmouth. The media was around. They were getting phone calls, uh, and they they went down to my grandparents' house, and I lived directly across the street from my grandparents, uh, and so we all congregated in my grandparents' living room and discussed this and and what to do next. You know, it was really perplexing at that point. When you're outed, what do you do? <laughs> and what was exactly what, what? What was that conversation like? What were the what, what? What were the options considered? I guess you could say. What you know? What were you guys? What, what? What were you saying you should do next? Well, they couldn't well deny it. That would be lying. And and as we discussed it, we thought, well, maybe they should just come clean and go forward with the story of what did happen to them, um, to talk about uh, the differences between what did happen and the story in the Boston newspaper, because that story wasn't accurate. It was based upon hearsay. Uh, some people believe that this reporter had actually uh, gotten a hold of the abduction tapes. I say that it, that would have been impossible because the information was inaccurate. It had to have been passed to him through hearsay. Um, and I, uh, I've done a lot of investigation on this, and so I really do think that that is what happened, that uh, some people were gossiping and couldn't keep the story in and told this reporter. Interesting, um, interesting. Have you ever tracked this guy down or tracked down anyone, you know, from the paper of that era to find out more information about how it all came to be? Stanton Friedman did. And uh, the uh, the newspaper reporter uh, did not want to cooperate with Stanton. And he told Stanton that all of the original uh, reports that he had gotten, all of his original notes had been left at the newspaper uh, when he left the newspaper and had probably been destroyed. So Stan was not able to get any additional information. Huh. That's interesting. Ironic that he doesn't want to 
he doesn't want to cooperate, but he had no problem uh, taking advantage of the story when it, it suited him. So, you know, that's his legacy, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. This has got you written all over it. The Mets stayed in a Pittsburgh hotel that also hosted a convention of people dressed up as furry creatures. Oh, no. Is this Wilbon's worst nightmare? No, it's worse than my worst nightmare. My worst nightmare is mascots. <laughs> Look at that. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. What, what are they let thinking, me, Bobby? All right, let me tell you something. This is what, here's, here's the real story here. In 40 years' worth of being on the road, traveling around this great land of ours, checking into countless hotels of all stripes, here's what I've learned. There's a frightening amount of subcultures out there, Mike, and they all have conventions. <laughs> yeah, but you've never and seen I these people. I to understand one thing. I've never seen them. Stay away from me. That, thank you very much. Well, the mistreatment at the hands of the reporter kind of speaks to a larger thing that I've noticed in a way, and that's that in the UFO community, it often seems like abductees are treated as like evidence and not as people. And, you know, they're right up against the skeptics all the time. They have to deal with all that. And then to the UFO community, it's like they're always they're trying to get blood from a stone. They're always trying to get more information from them. And it seems like, you know, they lose that humanity in a way to this research community. Did Betty and Barney go through that sort of experience, and, and what was that like? Yes, I do believe that Betty and Barney did go through that experience. I know that Barney was greatly distressed when researchers and scientists would go to his house and would ask to listen to the abduction tapes. And... Uh, of course, when there was one point on those tapes where he was terrified and he broke down and, and he was frantic and he was screaming, or very distressed. And uh, he, he was fearing for his own life at that point. Uh, and he thought that those... Re oh, my God. What is going on here? Weird. I, I got disconnected from you, or I lost you. You 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 phased out there on me. I couldn't hear anything anymore. So I figured oh, I'd try to call you back and see if we got a better connection this time. Well, just keep calling me back if this happens. I I haven't had any difficulties for a long, long time, and I can tell you I did an interview on Monday night. I've done one every night, but on Monday night, uh, I got cut off three times. Weird. And I don't know what's going on. They don't want you talking about this case anymore. Kathy. I don't know what it is. I've talked about it enough so that I know what's the very yeah yeah. You know? They don't want me talking about it. I don't get it. I don't like that. <laughs> so, so we could be paranoid, or we could think that it's the line. <laughs> <laughs> so all right, let's get back to this. The, the abductees as evidence. This is the most tr troubling question we've had uh, all night here. We can't seem to get 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 to it. But uh, you know, abductees as evidence. You know, as seen by. Really, now that I'm thinking more about it, not just the UFO community, but also the government as well. I mean, there's probably a possibility that that, that was going on, too. There is a possibility that it was. I don't know for sure. But, uh, you know, of course, Betty and Barney believed in, in many ways that they were being viewed uh, by scientists sort of as specimens, uh, you know, uh, looking at their psychological state of being, um, and uh, Barney was very distressed when scientists wanted to listen. Oh. 
where he became very emotionally distressed. And I, I want to say that there's a false impression, it's been disseminated in the mainstream media, that Barney was highly emotional throughout that trip. And that is false. And, and if you listen to the hypnosis tapes, you will realize that it is false. Barney became very, very frightened when he was in the field. And when Dr. Simon was, was forcing him to remember that point at which he had... Uh, I just got uh, the... That he was... That, that it, people think that, Be, uh, that Barney was distressed the whole time on the taste, but he was only, just, he was only distressed when he uh, was, was forced by Dr. Simon to go into the field. Okay. Then you cut out again. I don't know what's going on here. I'm on a corded phone, too, so there shouldn't be any frust – this is frustrating. <laughs> right. It certainly is. So let me pick up from there, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, Barney thought that people would misjudge him. Uh, it's, I think that it's understandable that when someone is in fear that they might lose their lives, that they might become highly emotional. And at this one point on those hypnosis tapes, when he was being forced by Dr. Simon to recall that period in the field for which he had developed this mental block, Barney lost it. He, uh, he was terrified. He was hysterical. He screamed a couple of times. He was shrieking. And I think that's understandable, but it bothered him terribly when scientists listened to that information about him because he was afraid he would be misjudged, that they would think that he wasn't a brave man. And here we have a man who served during World War II. He was in the Army. Uh, in 1961, he was married to a white woman, and that in itself was a brave thing to do. He... Uh, he was a civil rights leader in the state of New Hampshire. So, you know, it was obvious he was a brave man, but he did have that concern. Uh, there was also the idea of this psychological examination. Well, any mental health practitioner who did examine Betty and Barney determined that they were perfectly healthy and normal. But uh, I guess from a distance, people who didn't know them hypothesized that they might have had personality disorders and mm -hmm. they might have been fantasy prone or this might have been um, temporary psychosis. There were all sorts of ridiculous explanations and hypotheses for what might have happened. Uh, Hello. Very strange. We got, we got you up to where you, where you said there were a lot of hypotheses, strange hypotheses for what happened. Maybe we should just move to the next question and see if we get better luck on somehow. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what, you know, I, I don't know what's going on. I, I, I'm just stunned, so I'm hoping maybe if we move to something else, maybe we'll <laughs> have better okay. luck. That's, okay. <laughs> try everything, right? Yes. Um, okay, so they're outed. And they decide to, to face the music, if you will, and, and share their story with the world. And that's really, you know, when this whole thing becomes like a national sensation in a lot of ways, they're, they're struggling. They decide to come clean. What was their next step to, to contact the media themselves? During the first week of November 1965, Betty and Barney 
spoke to the public for the first time at the Unitarian Church in Dover, New Hampshire. There was an overflow crowd. They were introduced by the public relations or the public information officer from Pease Air Force Base who gave a brief statement. And then they and Barney spoke about their UFO sighting. They didn't talk about their abduction. So that was their first public statement. Before that, they had spoken uh, to a group of UFO investigators in 1963. That was a two-state UFO study group. So it was just a, a meeting of, of members of the study group that they had spoken to. It was kind of on an impromptu basis. They weren't on the agenda, but they had been invited to go to the study group, and they went to learn more about UFOs. Um, and they had spoken to some members of their church uh, previously, just about their sighting, not about the abduction itself. Yeah. So, uh, yes, and then it was at that church uh, we're in Dover where they spoke that they met John G. Fuller. He was in the area. He was writing uh, and doing research on uh, his book, Incident at Exeter, mm -hmm. and he approached Betty and Barney. He was introduced to them by Ben Sweat, who was an officer at Pease Air Force Base, who was sort of working with Betty and Barney uh, in attempting to help them to cope with the situation that they had gone through. In fact, he, when Dr. Simon had turned the hypnosis tapes over to them, uh, they went, they gave those tapes to Ben and went to his house and listened to them with Ben. Ben was a hypnotist, and uh, Ben made a statement uh, on a, a television program that I did where we went down to his home near Washington, D.C. to interview him, that uh, after they listened to those tapes, Barney got up and went to the sink and vomited. And Ben said, uh, that's not something that you can fake. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's, yeah, that's... You know, that's just tangible. I don't know. There's a word I'm trying to come up with here, but that's just, just beyond the pale. Um, yes, yes. Wow. So getting back to your question, I'm, I'm sorry <laughs> I got off on a tangent okay. there. But uh, getting back to your question, uh, they met John Fuller. He presented a proposal to them. They met with him uh, a few times and decided that they would like to have Dr. Simon involved in a book as well. So they decided to consent to having this book written uh, to tell the true story of what happened to them. Exactly, yeah, which is important because, you know, in this day and age now, especially like of spin and everything, you got to control the story. So they, they sort of saw that themselves, you know, that they can't sit back and let somebody just uh, have the story keep getting regurgitated over and over again and without – you know, getting the uh, the first-hand perspective out there. Yes. And then at that point, they almost like become sort of, you say they were well-known in New Hampshire, but then they become sort of like celebrities in a big way, doing a lot of TV programs and stuff like that, I presume, right? Yes, absolutely. They had to promote the book, uh, and it became a New York Times bestseller, 
it went worldwide. It was published in a number of uh, different countries and different languages. So yes, they they were suddenly thrust into the position of being celebrities, um, and it sort of pulled them away from their community activities, their civil rights activities, their political activities, and that sort of thing for a while. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you know their whole lives changed. Uh not just as a result of the incident, but also as a result of the notoriety that surrounded it. I mean, this is, and people need to remember too, folks listening at home need to remember, you know, that this is seen as the seminal abduction case, the first ever abduction case in America, and really behind the uh, the V.S. Boas case, the only the second abduction of the modern era that we really know about, or at least the most well-known. So, I mean, the, this isn't like... Nowadays, when someone says they're an abductee, and it's like, hey, get in line, pal. It's it's like, the, this was really, really something different and and stunning. So, I mean, how did they yeah. react? Oh, go, go ahead. Yeah, reflect and on that a little the, bit. It was the first case reported in the United States. The V.S. Boas case wasn't reported uh, publicly in the United States until about, uh, I guess it was, 1966 or 1967 by Jim and Coral Lorenzen, who were the heads of uh, APRO. So uh, no one knew about it earlier. It was the first uh, reported abduction case in America. Just amazing stuff there. I mean, so like I said, folks at home need to understand this isn't just an abductee case. This is the first abductee case. So what was... From a personality perspective, you know, you say that they got pulled away from their commitments, and I'm sure that was difficult. What was their perspective sort of on this on this celebrityhood? Because that changes people. That changes them, you know, fundamentally. So what was, you know, what was their reaction to that? I think that they took it in stride. I think that Barney would have preferred to have devoted full time to his civil rights activities, and he tried to do both. And he was really burning the candle at both ends. He was working full-time then at the Portsmouth Post Office. Uh, He was continuing with his civil rights activities. And he was on the road. He was speaking about his UFO experience. And I think that all of that might have combined to lead to his early demise. In 1969, February of the year, he died from a massive cerebral hemorrhage at the age of 46. Wow. Wow. I'm sure that was just tremendously difficult for the whole family. I mean, this doesn't, this isn't something that, this is one of those deaths that comes out of nowhere. This isn't like someone who was sick. Yes, it was extremely difficult. And it leaves Betty in a very difficult position as well, because, you know, throughout the whole post-UFO encounter, she sort of had you know, not just, uh, you know, not just her best friend, her husband with her by her side throughout the whole, you know, post situation, but, you know, she had someone who could back up the story and everything. So it's very, you know, it changes, changes tremendously her perspective, I'm sure, because you go from being in a tandem to being on your own. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, you know, he was, he was a very good support for her. They had a, an incredibly good marriage, a great relationship, and all of a sudden she was alone. And, and it was very, very difficult. And, you know, we talked earlier about uh, those earrings that were on the table. Well, 
there were some things that happened in Betty's house almost starting immediately after Barney died that were very distressing. And I ended up moving in with Betty um, to be with her, uh, to watch her house for one thing because people were breaking in and doing, or someone was breaking in and, and doing things that were very, very bizarre. Uh, let me give you an example. Yes, please do. I was afraid that you didn't want to talk about it, but now you've, <laughs> you've really got me intrigued, Kathy. What, what are these I was, a, I, was, I was a college student at the University of New Hampshire. Betty was in, on the main floor of the house, and I was in the basement apartment. We kept the doors unlocked between the apartments, and, and I was down there studying one day, and it was about noon, and uh, I heard someone walking around Betty's apartment, and I thought she'd probably returned home for lunch. So uh, I went up the stairs and went in calling her name and she wasn't there. I looked, her car wasn't there. So I went back downstairs. And when I got down there, I'd no sooner gotten back to my studying, but I heard a loud bang. And then I heard footsteps, very heavy footsteps that sounded like someone was running. I ran back up the stairs and there uh, was a man who had dressed in a brown suit. He was running out of the, the front door of the house. Betty's apartment door was open. The front door of the house was open. The closet door was open. There was a baseball bat on the floor huh. that Betty had in her closet. So someone had come to that house to do something, and I apparently interrupted what he had intended to do. But at other times, and the reason I moved in is that Betty would go home from work, and there in her living room would be her dining room chairs arranged in a circle. Another time, she went home from work, and all of her coats had been taken out of her closet. They were mounded in a pile on her living room floor, and Barney's scarf was laying over the top. You there still? Yes. I lost you right where you said uh, Barney's scarf was laying on top. So right from there, uh, we, we lost you, but I didn't hang up. So luckily, we uh, we got you back. But we, okay. we're doing okay so far, so hopefully... Uh, that we, this will be lessened. These okay. Cuts. Did you get the part about Barney's scarf laying on top of the pile? Yep. Yep. Right. That's right when you cut up. You said Barney's okay, scarf so, was laying on top. Okay. So I'm going to say, <laughs> I think that it was human activity. I think that the purpose of all of this was in an attempt to unnerve Betty, perhaps to drive her to a nervous breakdown, perhaps to. Uh, anticipate that she might announce publicly that these bizarre things were happening in her house in order to discredit her. But I was there to support Betty. She had many friends who were supporting her and family who were a strong source of support to her. Somebody was trying to push her over the edge, and they failed. She eventually... Uh, had a security system involved in her home that was wired into the police department, and this resolved the problem. Nice, nice. Well, that makes sense, and that would suggest that it was 
human interaction, because if it was some kind of paranormal thing, it would find a way around these security measures, I'm sure. Yes. Now, that sort of, like, brings us just a whole lot more, obviously, to the Betty and Barney Hill story. But, I mean, I know just talking to you here right now that we could talk all night and then all day into the morning and all day tomorrow about the case. So we, we <laughs> time, unfortunately, is our enemy in this sense. Um, of course, and people can talk to you when they come up to Exeter for the big festival in, in about a week. So let's... Uh, Let's we'll sort of like fine tune this, get more towards the end here, and, and just sort of look at this from a big picture perspective. You know, it's interesting that in the history of ufology, the Betty and Barney Hill case is the bridge from contactees to abductees. They're, they're the ones who sort of started the whole abductee era, if you will, and then it really exploded, you know, about in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, what do you think about how abduction research has gone on from your uncle and aunt's case. I was very impressed by the quality of abduction research uh, during the 60s and the 70s. There was funding. Uh, there were uh, abduction investigators who were able to do a very thorough job. There were psychologists called in. In many of the those early cases, uh, the individuals who were claiming that they they believed they were abducted, were multiple witness cases. They were credible people. Um, the multiple, All of those individuals would take lie detector tests and pass them, so we didn't have just one person taking a lie detector test. There were several. Um, they had psychological testing, and they tested normal on the psychological testing. And there was evidence that something had occurred. There had been a close encounter with uh, an anomalous kind of craft. It, uh, in many times, it looked like a plane coming in on free fall. It would stop and hover over a car, and the engine would die. Um, well, over time, as, as uh, anyone who has been following this knows, this kind of scenario sort of came to an end, uh, and the primary way that people appear to be abducted today is from their bedrooms while they're sleeping. And this makes it so much more difficult because although there is oftentimes some evidence left behind, there is never an observation of a craft uh, or a close encounter with a craft. There are hardly ever multiple witness reports. Uh, there uh, and it's extremely difficult to do this kind of investigation, and then you have the possibility that there might be a psychological explanation for it, where there is very limited evidence and uh, and no witnesses except for the person who's subjectively experiencing this. Um, you know, maybe it's sleep paralysis with hypnagogic or hypnopompic hallucinations. Very valid explanation when there is no evidence and the person just wakes up paralyzed and observes maybe some uh, small beings in the room. Exactly, yeah. It got very strange abductions. It seems like it. the Betty and Barney Hill case seems quaint in some respects compared to, you know, what we learn in subsequent years with regards to abductions and how and the tone they take uh, in later years. It's very strange. 
Yes, it is. As we've said here at the beginning of the show, this is the 50th anniversary of Betty and Barney Hill's abduction. You know, I guess, what would you say is their lasting legacy on this strange paranormal world? I mean, they are household names to anyone who studies the paranormal. So, I mean, it's, like I said earlier, it's an iconic case, but I guess speak to the legacy of, of this case. Well, I think that what we can say is here we have a highly credible couple respected in the community uh, who had no personal agenda for having a UFO sighting or a close encounter or an abduction. It just sort of came out of the blue when they were returning home on a vacation. And there's so much evidence that this probably was a real abduction that we all have to open our eyes. It causes people to think that perhaps we really are being visited. It causes us to have to change our world view. <laughs> yes, and beyond, and beyond, really. Now, you know, I hear the tact taken, and this isn't really from skeptics, it's for, sort of from like people in the UFO community who say, you know, that with with these cases that are really old, you know, nothing new ever comes to light. No one ever learns anything new. Like, everything we can learn has already come out about this case. Has there anything sort of like new or, you know, revelatory that's that's come out in recent years, maybe from your research into Betty's files or from, you know, some other outside source, if you will? As I examine those files, and there are thousands and thousands of pages there, I believe, and, mm -hmm. and everything that's been written... Occasionally, I do find a new piece of information that hadn't been reported before and that I hadn't noticed during those 15 years when I researched the case initially. And uh, just as an example of one of those was Barney's statement that he had observed uh, figures on board the craft that were somehow not human. And he made that statement to Walter Webb in his initial investigation meeting report. So, um, you know, that that was something that I just recently found, and it wasn't in captured. Now, what about uh, any sort of, like, underlying remaining physical evidence? I mean, obviously, I know that they had that university exhibit a few years ago where Betty's dress was put on display. Is there What kind of stuff is still remaining from uh, from that night? Yes, there's a, a chapter in my book uh, captured uh, about the analyses that have been done on Betty's dress. Her dress has undergone chemical uh, and forensic analysis four different times, and there's also been a seed growth study done on with the pink powder that hmm. appeared on Betty's dress, a very strange pink powder. So, yes, there there has been analysis on that, and that's pretty significant. Of course, there was also Marjorie Fish's early work on the star map that Betty drew as the result of a post-hypnotic suggestion from Dr. Simon after uh, she had relived a conversation she had with the leader on board the craft where she asked him where he was from, and he produced a three-dimensional map that was very much like a hologram. And uh, there were stars on it. Some of them were as large as nickels. Two were as large as nickels. Some were only pinpoints. Uh, the, the two large ones were connected by five solid lines. Others were connected by 
two or three solid lines, and then there were others that were connected by dotted or dashed lines. And Betty said it was her understanding that the solid lines represented uh, trade routes or places that they went to on uh, frequently, and that the dotted lines represented expeditions. And Marjorie Fish had read John Fuller's book, The Interrupted Journey, in 1966. Betty's map was in that book. And, Bet and Marjorie, who was a member of Mensa, a very brilliant woman from Ohio, she was a school teacher. Uh, she had studied biology in college. Uh, reasoned that perhaps if this place really existed in our galaxy, she could find it. So she started looking for this pattern of stars. She thought initially that she'd find many, but in the end, she found only one, and that was with great difficulty. She met with Betty many times. She talked with Betty uh, in the early years. She met with her in person in 1969 when she visited her at her apartment in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. She, uh, over that period of time, between 66 and 72, constructed 26 three-dimensional models wow. of different parts of our galaxy based upon Betty's two-dimensional map. Uh, she used monofilament line and beads of different sizes. Uh, one had 256 stars in its proper three-dimensional location. The great difficulty she had is those catalogs were not readily available to her. She had to go to the astronomy department at the college, and she had to sit down there and hand copy the data out of the Gleasy catalogs. They didn't even have a Xerox machine back then to photocopy it. Um, and then she had to take that data home, and she had to do the math to know the proper position in which to put every one of those beads. And you can imagine doing that 26 times. Unbelievable, uh, In yeah. the end, in, in 1972, a new catalog came out, a new Gleasy catalog, and she was able to complete her work when the last three stars were found. We didn't even know that they existed in 1964 <laughs> when Betty drew that map. And uh, the interesting thing is that she identified those base stars, the ones in the, at the very front of that map, as uh, Zeta Reticuli 1 and 2. And they are in the constellation Reticulum in our southern hemisphere. And uh, the sun is on the map as well. And uh, very interesting, all of the stars that she had connected on that map were at that time believed to be sun-like stars. Uh, and Zeta-1 and Zeta-2 reticuli were very similar to our sun in their mass, in their diameter, and in their luminosity. And they were estimated to be as much as 3 billion years older than our sun. So if there are planets uh, around those stars uh, that have developed life, then they might have, uh, it might be a civilization old enough to have developed technology that would enable them to travel 
to Earth. Yes, yes, I know Zeta in particular. I always a, a main suspect, I guess you could say, in the source of these uh, strange objects. So a lot of yeah. that, I'm sure, comes from the star map case, you know, the strength of that. So yes. tremendous now, some stuff. Of the ma- some of the stars on Marjorie's map have uh, different values today now that we know that, uh, that we have a better estimate of their distances. But uh, Zeta-1 and Zeta-2 reticuli still look very interesting to me. Absolutely. Now, we've said here that this coming up is the 50th anniversary of uh, the abduction. I know that uh, they recently erected a historical plaque for Betty and Barney on U.S. Route 3 in North Lincoln. Talk about, I'm sure that you played a hand in this, I know, because I've seen it on your website. I guess talk a little bit about the process, and, and, you know, kudos to you, because it's so difficult to get any respect, really, when you're talking about UFOs. It's just difficult. And and so to get a historical plaque from the state of New Hampshire is a tremendous achievement. So, I mean, I'm, hats off to you for that. Talk a little bit about the process. Sounds like it was a bit arduous at times, but eventually it did work out and you guys got the plaque, right? Yes, that's correct. And and uh, a man, New Hampshire man, David Stevens, uh, contacted me several years ago, I think it was 2007 or 2008, with the idea, and he had uh, actually gotten uh, a lot of people to sign a petition for this to happen, but then he had somehow gotten in touch with the uh, Department of Historical Resources uh, for the committee that was in charge of erecting these historical markers. Mm -hmm. And that's when I got involved because it would have to be me who would uh, knew so so much about the case and had all of the the materials to back up the statements. So I uh, sent a petition into the state of New Hampshire, and several years passed, and I didn't hear anything. I had sort of given up on it. I thought that perhaps they weren't going to do it. Uh, But then this spring, I received uh, a message from the department uh, informing me that they had decided to fund it. So I was very, very happy about this. It took a lot of work because for a brief paragraph, I had to uh, provide footnotes for every statement, and not just one, multiple footnotes, to prove that what what I said was accurate. I had 20 footnotes and 28 references <laughs> for a short paragraph about the hills. And uh, it just simply says, uh, on the night of September 19. 19- to 20, 1961, Portsmouth, New Hampshire couple Betty and Barney Hill experienced a close encounter with an unidentified flying object and two hours of lost time while driving south on Route 3 near Lincoln. They filed an official Air Force Project Blue Book report of a brightly lit cigar-shaped craft the next day, but were not public with their story until it was leaked in the Boston Traveler in 1965. This was the first widely reported UFO abduction report in the United States. So that's what it says. It uh, sits on Route 3 in North Lincoln, uh, right out in front of the Indian Head Resort. Awesome. And that is the location where the 50th anniversary celebration is going to take place on September 23rd and 24th. At the Indian Head Resort? 
in New Hampshire. Yes, in North Lincoln, New Hampshire. Excellent, excellent. What do you guys have planned for the uh, for the big 50th anniversary celebration? Well, Stanton Friedman is going to meet me there, and uh, on Friday evening we're going to do a lecture on the Betty and Barney Hill case. It's going to be different from the one that I do in Exeter. And then the following day we're going to give a guided tour of the Close Encounter route. And um, there's the the movie, the original movie, UFO Incident, starring James Earl Jones and Estelle Parsons, is going to be shown. And then there's going to be a book signing and a, a cocktail party, and Stan and I will do the book signing and be there to have our photographs taken with people and to, t- to discuss the case. Uh, answer anybody's questions that they might have. And then there is going to be a dinner where they're going to be serving Betty's and Barney's favorite foods. Interesting. That's cool. I like that. That's a nice touch to the whole event. Was yeah. that was that your idea or someone else come up with that one? Um, <laughs> the I guess it was the cook at the restaurant who came up with that idea. Very good. Very. Uh, I like that. Yes. And I thought it was good. Yeah. What? For, for, so I just gave them the information about the foods that Betty and Barney liked. <laughs> I got to. I got to know now. What? 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 What is on the menu then? What? What were their foods? Well, I'm trying to remember. <laughs> <laughs> I I had given them several suggestions. I'm not sure exactly what is on the menu, but I do know that Betty loved boiled dinner. That was one of her favorites. <laughs> Barney was a big beef eater. He loved uh, hamburgers and cheeseburgers, and uh, they loved chocolate cake. That was another thing. Interesting. So, um, All right. I gave them several suggestions, so we'll see what they come up with. Awesome, awesome. Is there a website for the for the celebration for the fiftieth uh, for the event there? Yes, you can go actually to the Exeter UFO Festival site and uh, follow that, and click down to uh, go down and click on the Indian Head Resorts uh, URL. Or you can go to my site and you can find it there. That's www.kathleen with a K dash com. Or you can go online and uh, go to uh, www.indianheadresort.com. So there are several ways to find it. Awesome, awesome. And of course, we got to talk about Exeter here because uh, it's coming up in just a few short days by the time people are listening to this. It's actually coming up in a few short days right now because it's only about a week away. Yes, absolutely. And, and I know you've been an integral part of this whole thing, and you know they kind of brought me in on the mix uh, last year, and I love it. I really just love the whole event. I'm actually going up a couple days early just because I love Exeter so much and, and love the experience. And it'd be nice to get away for for a while and enjoy that, you know that town it's like a it's like a norman rockwell painting come to life it's just unbelievable so talk a little bit about the big exeter event what you're going to be talking about and the event in general because you know i've been talking about it for a while i've done a bunch of appearances and have been trying to get people excited about this event because it's such a fantastic uh day up there in exeter but you know you're, you're a big part of it as well so let's hear your take on it oh it's a great event a great day it starts at eight o'clock in the morning and uh it's free to the public. Speakers are going to be, in addition to myself, are going to be Stanton Friedman, Rich Dolan, and Steve Fermani. 
And there is also going to be a movie. It was a documentary made by a couple originally from New Hampshire who now live in California. And the movie has two parts. One is about the Hill abduction, and the other is about the incident at Exeter. Now, my lecture is going to be on, uh, it's called Setting the Record Straight on the Betty and Barney Hill case. So, as I said a little bit earlier, I'm going to be presenting the skeptic's arguments, and then I'm going to be uh, presenting the documented evidence uh, that I have photocopied to set the record straight about what is real, what is the truth, and what is not the truth regarding the Hill abduction. Excellent. I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be outstanding, folks. Uh, so... Come on up and check it out, www.exeterufofestival.com. And Kathy said the magic word right there. It's absolutely free. So if you're in the New England area or even if you feel like making the drive up to Exeter, you know, just find your way to Exeter and walk right into the town hall and you can you can uh, experience the whole event. So that's what I really love about the event too, you know. It's, 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 it's open for everybody. There are also children's activities taking place throughout the day in a different location. Absolutely, yeah, the, yeah. The conference is at the Exeter Town Hall. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then throughout town, there's all these great children's activities. It's really fun for the whole family, too. That's another thing that's great about it. You hear about a lot of these UFO conferences. They're very stoic. And, of course, uh, you know, the presentations are going to be stoic here and, and fascinating and in-depth. But, there's, you know, you can bring your kids to these and, and have some fun as well, which is, which is really great because we want to be inclusive and include the whole community in this. It will be a great day, I think, for, for anybody who decides to attend. And they should, for sure. Now, what's going on with you beyond the big 50th anniversary? I know uh, you obviously, as we said at the beginning, you co-authored Capture with Stan Freeman. You also co-authored a follow-up book or a second book, if you will, uh, Science Was Wrong, that you wrote with Stan as well. Uh, what kind of projects do you have in the till right now that we can look forward to from Kathy Martin in the future? Well, there is a new book just published, UFOs and Aliens. Is there anybody out there? And I, it's an anthology with uh, 12 different authors. I have a chapter in that titled Alien Abduction, Fact or Fiction. And I have just produced uh, a DVD. It's 132 minutes. And it is excerpts from Betty's and Barney's hypnosis tapes. They have been reworked. They, uh, you won't hear Dr. Simon's voice. You will only hear Betty and Barney uh, describing and reliving the events that they went through on the night of September 19th and into the early morning hours of September 20th, 1961. It is good because uh, under hypnosis there are many pauses and, and it just drags on and the quality of those initial tapes was not really good. But Bob Terrio does this for a living, and he produced it and edited it, and he did a wonderful job. Uh, the, their voices are clear. They speak right along. You don't hear those pauses. And it's uh, a DVD, so you get video as well. You have ar archival photos. You'll see the entire uh, Close Encounter route and uh, artist renditions of what the UFO looked like. You'll even see it flying. You'll see artist renditions of what happened during the abduction as you hear Betty and Barney describing what happened to them. Awesome, awesome. Where can folks pick that up? At the website? 
Uh, it is only available at my website and at Stanton Friedman's website, and I will have it at the Exeter UFO Festival. Awesome, awesome. I want to try and get my hands on a copy of that. It sounds fantastic. Well, Everyone who has listened to it has been very impressed. I'm sure, yeah. It sounds amazing. It sounds amazing. I, I definitely want to uh, check that out. All right, we're going to just uh, do the wrap-up here, and we'll be all set, Okay. Okay. All right. Thank you for going the extra half hour. I appreciate it. It's been a crazy interview here. So. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, thank goodness we uh, after we finished talking about those uh, highly controversial topics. Uh, it's weird. It, it's very we, weird. We had a good connection. <laughs> yeah. It's very. Uh, it's very strange. Well, Kathy, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. What many of the listeners may not realize, although uh, I haven't edited, obviously, the interview yet, but we'll see uh, how it all works out. But we've been plagued by technical difficulties here, uh, especially when we get into some of the more controversial areas of the story. So very strange, one of the strangest interviews I've conducted in a long time here. And I really, really want to thank you for your patience in dealing with all this and for being so candid and forthright and detailed about the Betty and Barney Hill case. I mean, this one is perfect for the BOA Audio Archive for anyone who wants to learn more about this case because you really provide just a stunning array of details as we follow the chronology of how this story developed. And as I said, you know, you hear that you're the niece of Betty and Barney Hill, but people don't seem to realize, or perhaps they hadn't realized, that you really were there all along the course of this whole thing, with the exception of the very night when it happened. You you weren't in the car, but you were about as close as you can get to the Betty and Barney Hill abduction. And I just find your perspective on all this to be absolutely fascinating. And I cannot wait to meet you again in a week at Exeter so I can talk to you without someone uh, cutting out on the conversation every five minutes. <laughs> Well, thank you for having me on and for persevering through all of those times when we were cut off and, and you had to call me back. I, I really appreciate it. It's important that the truth is told. Absolutely, absolutely. And you're doing just tremendous work here, keeping the legacy of Betty and Barney Hill alive. I mean, without you, this story could fall by the wayside, and it hasn't, and it's gotten stronger and stronger over the years and getting the recognition that it deserves not just in the UFO community, but as we've seen from the historical marker in New Hampshire, from the world at large. And hopefully someday we'll look back on the Betty and Barney Hill case and there won't be that question mark attached to it anymore. We'll know for sure there was something seriously going on there and it was the start of whatever world we're going to be living in in the future. And and that, I think, is uh, you know what we all strive for. So thank you once again for coming on the show, and I will see you in a few short days. Looking forward to uh, catching up again in Exeter. And I'm looking forward to it, too. Good night. That does it for this installment of BOA Audio Season 6. Big, big thanks, of course, to our guest, Kathleen Marden. Be sure to check out our website, www.kathleen-marden.com. Don't forget the hyphen, my friends, and also be sure to check out her books, co-authored with Stanton Friedman, Captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, and science was wrong. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. And even though we're trying to rush the episode out to you, I feel like I owe you some BOA Audio listener feedback. So let's dig on in to the mailbag and answer some listener emails. The first one comes from Mark O'Day in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And here's what he has to say. 
I enjoy your program very much, and I notice that you are featuring musical acts on your show from time to time. Are you still accepting submissions? If so, could you provide me with information regarding said submission? Thank you, and keep up the awesome work. Mark O'Day, from the Galactic Cowboy Orchestra in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Thank you for writing in, Mark. Absolutely, we are still accepting music submissions from the BOA Audio listeners. I kind of have pulled back on the plugs at the beginning of the show requesting music because, quite simply, I am just overwhelmed with submissions from the BOA Audio listeners. I barely have time to produce the program as it is right now, and to wade through all these outstanding musical submissions is certainly a lot of work that I have kept on the back burner. But how can you turn down a guy who is billed as part of the Galactic Cowboy Orchestra. I'm dying here with these guys have up their sleeves. So definitely shoot me your stuff, Mark. I would be happy to give it a listen. And that goes for all of the awesome BOA Audio listeners who have the musical talents and want to submit some music for the show. Don't be dismayed if you've sent something in and you haven't heard it yet on the program. It's all in a big folder on my hard drive. And it is in the till for future editions of BOA Audio. The next email comes from Sandra, no hometown listed, and here's what she has to say. Sorry, Tim, I listen to Banal every time you have a new show, even the baseball one, though I have no interest in sports. However, I had to turn off this week after about 20 minutes of listening to Marie and Larry bash the ghost shows and puffing themselves up for their wonderful research. Get real, folks. The shows are entertainment, not science, and my mother taught me not to toot my own horn too loudly, lest I appear conceited. Sandra, no hometown listed. First of all, thank you so much for writing in, Sandra. I wanted to feature your email here on the program as an example that we don't just read emails from the folks who are sending us glowing reviews. I hear your complaint, and I was thinking of your complaint as I was editing the episode before we put it out last week. So I completely hear what you're saying, Sandra, you know, and in a lot of ways that was part of the realness of the episode. I'm not going to speak for Marie and Larry. All I'm going to say is, you know, that's just the way they feel, and, I, and they're not apologetic about that. That's the way they feel, and that's their real feelings. And maybe on some other shows, they would rein it in, or they would try to be a little more paranormally politically correct. But here on BOA Audio, they feel comfortable to speak their mind, as do I when I speak to them on the show. I'm apologetic if it ruffled your feathers, but that's just the way we all felt. And I wanted to give folks out there an opportunity to hear a very real conversation with these two fantastic researchers. With regards to the ghost shows being only entertainment, I absolutely agree with you, Sandra. There is no dispute about that. And I think that really is part of what the big bone of contention is, not just with Marie and Larry and myself, but a lot of people in the paranormal community. We put a lot of work into this. We put a lot of thought into this. And to see some of these programs really that, in my honest opinion, are as fake as anything you're going to see on the WWE. And that's what upsets me, really, is 
that you're not getting the honest truth from these programs, and it paints the entire paranormal community in a false light. But that's really a whole nother kettle of fish, so we'll just leave it at that. I really appreciate that you wrote in, Sandra, and believe me, I hear your criticism loud and clear. Final email comes from Brett in Massachusetts. Here's what he has to say. I'm going out to Exeter next weekend, hopefully bringing some friends, too, who may have a vague interest in this stuff. Was wondering if there's any Friday night pregame going on, as it would be nice to meet people in a more casual, i.e. drunk, setting. Let me know. I'm looking forward to this. Brett in Massachusetts. You knew I wasn't going to let BOA Audio listener feedback go here in this episode without throwing in one more Exeter UFO Festival plug. I'm shameless, folks. I really am shameless when it comes to this event. But you know something? I don't feel too bad about plugging the shit out of this show because it's absolutely free. If I was trying to push tickets on people, I'd feel pretty bad about the whole thing. I really would be embarrassed by how much I am pushing the Exeter UFO Festival. But in my heart of hearts, I know that we're putting on an outstanding program here for folks in Exeter, New Hampshire, Saturday, September 3rd, and we're putting on the show absolutely free for anybody that can find their way to Exeter. Attendance at this festival will not cost you a thing, and that's something that the vast majority of UFO events quite simply cannot boast. That's why we're plugging the shit out of it here on BOA Audio, not just because I'm the MC, but because this is a fantastic opportunity for anybody in the New England area to see some top-notch UFO researchers and not bust their wallets to do so. With regards to Friday night pregame for the Exeter UFO Festival, it is in the works. Anyone who listens to our sister program, The Good Parade, knows that we have been talking about this for quite some time, and we have a lot of listeners, not just Good Parade listeners, but BOA Audio listeners, making the trip up to Exeter. Stay tuned to the BOA Forum, theusofe.com, as well as my Facebook page, facebook.com slash B-I-N-N-A-L-L. I am literally going to be in Exeter in the next 24 hours to kick off the start of what is kind of a staycation of sorts for me, where I'll be spending Wednesday and Thursday and obviously Friday and Saturday as well as Sunday up in Exeter. So I'll be scouting out some locations for a BOA audio slash good parade get together on Friday night. As I said, stay tuned to the BOA outlets for more information on where all that is going down. It will most likely be kind of impromptu, but I'm going to try and get folks at least 24 hours notice on where things will be happening. And once again, let's plug the website, www.exeterufofestival.com. Pretty simple, all one word, exeterufofestival.com. Check it out. Now, this mention of the Good Parade actually reminds me that I want to talk a little bit about the technical difficulties that happened during the interview you just heard. I completely forgot about that until now. And the reason why the Good Parade mention jogged my memory is because literally the day after we taped this Kathleen Martin interview for the program, we taped the latest edition of The Good Parade using the exact same setup that we used for the Kathleen Martin interview, which we also use for all BOA Audio and TGP episodes. 
that show ran an hour and 45 minutes and included zero technical difficulties, much like, I'd say, 90% of the BOA Audio episodes we've taped this season, which is part of why I wanted to include these weird issues in the show. Having gone over the episode, having edited it from beginning to end, what I'm struck by, really, is that the technical difficulties only occurred during two questions during the interview. The first question being abductees used as specimens by the abduction research community, and the second during Kathleen's discussion on the weird things that happened to Betty Hill after Barney Hill passed away. Now, obviously, we're never going to really know what happened. Occam's Razor tells us that there was just simply phone line issues, problems during the taping of the episode. These things happen. As I said, though, very, very rarely here over the last year or so on the program. But I'm fully willing to concede that it is very, very likely that that was merely it. A very innocent, benign explanation for what happened during that conversation. Now... Let's put on our tinfoil hats here and just speculate on what else that could have been. You have to first, of course, look at the idea of this whole government intervention. But I find that to be, quite frankly, lacking. Because we're talking about the 50th anniversary here of the Betty and Barney Hill case. There's just no reason why the government would want to tinker with an interview between Kathleen Martin and myself here 50 years after the whole thing went down, no matter how controversial or strange the questions were. Some folks out there, I'm sure, are saying it was totally the government. The government did it. Hey, more power to you guys. If that's what you believe, go for it. I'm skeptical of that. If I was really going to get esoteric about this, I would say that it has something to do with the trauma involved surrounding Barney's experience dealing with these abduction and UFO researchers. As Kathleen said when she answered the question, having to play those tapes for the researchers was tremendously traumatic for Barney Hill. Additionally, I have a feeling, and I'm almost willing to bet, that all of these weird events that happened to Betty Hill after Barney's death were also extremely traumatic. Where do you go from there? I don't know. Could it have been some kind of spiritual intervention? Anything's possible here on BOA Audio. Some kind of psychic interference, if you will. Kathleen certainly understood how traumatic these events were for them, and maybe it's just something that she has no control over, and it just happened as she was thinking about how difficult it was for her uncle and aunt to go through these experiences. I've talked to many, many people who listen to the program, and they're always saying, Tim, why don't you just tell us what you think about things? And really, the reason that is, is because I keep the book open at all times. I keep the possibilities endless here on the program. And I wanted to kind of spell out where my thinking has been going with regards to all this. As I said, Occam's Razor tells us that it was very likely phone issues. But beyond that, there's a whole myriad of possibilities for why this went down. And here at the end of the show, I just wanted to kind of spell out a few for the folks out there listening and give you guys a little food for thought. The reason I didn't want to 
go over all this at the beginning of the program is because I wanted people to give it some thought on their own and then listen to what I had to say about it. And then, you know, maybe we can all talk about it a little bit in future installments of BOA Audio listener feedback. I definitely would love to hear your theories on why we had these weird technical problems during the episode. Because as I said, this is definitely something that was not common here on the program over the last few months, if not year or so. We've certainly had some episodes that had technical issues, but I always could figure out almost immediately what the problem was. This time around, it was completely bizarre and flummoxing for me, and I've produced close to 200 episodes of this program, so it was certainly one for the mystery books, if you will. That's my ramble here for the end of the show. Send me your thoughts, send me your critiques, some of your correspondences, some of your theories on the program. I would love to hear them. And here are the means to get in touch with me, not just to shoot me a line, but also to participate in BOA Audio listener feedback. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or go to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com and click the contact button. And the final method, of course, is to join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. And if you're part of Facebook or Twitter, you can find me on those sites as well. Just punch in Banal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, and I'll pop up on the search engine right away. Feel free to befriend me, follow me, or poke me. It's all good, and we'd love to have you as part of our online circle of friends. Up next, please allow me to thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, our contributing cartoonist, Andy Carolin, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. This episode is coming out at you very quickly since the last episode, and I do not believe that we have posted any new material from the BOA staff, but I've got a ton of stuff in the till that is waiting to be posted while I'm in Exeter or right after I return around Labor Day. So stay tuned to Banal of America for a whole bunch of great stuff from the BOA staff. We say it every week here on the program, and it is the truth, my friends. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at Banal of America, then you're only getting half the story. B-O-A, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Now, traditionally, this is the part of the program where I take off my cap and pass it around to the BOA audio listeners and ask for your help by making a donation to the program. But I've been watching the Red Sox here tonight, and it's part of the annual Jimmy Fund Telethon to raise money for cancer research, and I just feel kind of strange about asking people to make donations to Banal of America this week. So we're going to do a little bit something different and ask you to make a donation to a charity that needs your help. It could be the Red Cross and helping out the folks who have been victims of Hurricane Irene. It could be the Dana-Farber Cancer Research Institute. It could be the Elizabeth Glazier Pediatric AIDS Foundation. It doesn't matter to me, but if you make a donation to an organization that needs your help, I'm sure that it would be greatly appreciated by those folks out there. I know a lot of people in the paranormal community come at you with sob stories about why they need your donations, but there are people out there in the real world 
with real problems who are suffering in a very big way, and they need our help in a much, much grander fashion. So if you can make a donation to those folks, that would be appreciated by myself and whatever organization you're making a donation to. I can always come back next week and ask for donations to the show, and I probably will. But this week, let's do something different. Let's do something special and make a donation to an organization that needs your help. Next week on the program, I can't say for sure when this one's going to be posted. I'm going to be burned out following the Exeter Festival, but I'm going to try and get it out to you towards the end of next week. And our guest on the program will be Butch Witkowski, talking about his research into the very controversial and strange human mutilation phenomenon. Butch has put forward a theory, essentially, that not only are cattle being mutilated, by some nefarious, possibly interstellar forces, but also human beings are as well. And he's going to present his research for the BOA Audio listeners right here on the program next week. And I would be remiss if I did not mention that Butch will also be addressing some of the controversy that has swirled around him over the last few months. If you're not familiar with this, I don't want to give it too much press, but let's just say that Butch has been facing imbrogno-esque accusations from various parties in the world of esoterica, and the rumor was for quite a while that he went underground, that he disappeared. Well, he's coming up above the surface on BOA Audio, not only to talk about his human mutilation research, but to answer these accusations. That'll be next time on BOA Audio. As I said, we're going to try and get it out to you towards the end of next week, but please don't hold me to that. And on that note, we close the book on another edition of BOA Audio. Big, big thanks, of course, to Kathleen Martin for coming on the show. Thanks to Mark, Sandra, and Brett for writing in on BOA Audio listener feedback. And enormous thanks to all you folks out there, the hardcore BOA Audio listeners, the folks who tune in all the way to the end of the program to listen to my ramblings. You guys are the best. You are the fuel that drives the BOA machine. I've been teasing it here at the end of the show for quite a while. We've got big, big plans for the BOA franchise in 2012 and beyond. And all that is thanks to the BOA Audio listeners and the BOA readers and supporters. Thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, or I see you in Exeter, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.